Did anyone feel sorry for any of those, those people? Anyone at all? We have, we have one person with a heart back there. Um, why, why is it that we didn't feel sorry for these athletes? Pride. Pride. They were being cocky. They were celebrating prematurely. Yeah, totally. Um, when, I, uh, when I found out that I was getting to preach this weekend, uh, three days before the new year, counting today, of course, uh, the thought that came to my mind was finish well. Finish well. And, and the scripture that jumped to my mind was 2 Timothy 4.7. Paul is talking to Timothy and he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And, and I don't know what it is about that, but it's like, it sounds like a coach to me. Paul sounds like he's a coach and he's saying, this is what I've done. Timothy, follow in suit. Fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. And when I hear that, it brings me back to my, my brief stint as an athlete in high school and the, coll- and, the, and the coaches and the things that they would say. And they, they centered around this idea of finishing well, finishing strong, going all the way to the end. And there were a number of things that came out uh, in, their, in their great talks uh, you know, at halftime and before the game one of the things was remember what the goal is. Remember what the goal is. Remember, perhaps in this case, where the finish line is, right? Um, back, I don't remember when it was, but Super Bowl, you know, XXIVQ, uh, where you had the Dallas Cowboys versus the Buffalo Bills. And, and you, you all know from Florida uh, these teams so well. Uh, but, but in this Super Bowl, you had Leon Lett, a defensive lineman, get the fumble and then run about 70 yards and then just miss, miss the touchdown. And here's the thing. Scoring a touchdown in a professional football game, that's a big deal. Can we, can we all agree? Anyone here ever scored a touchdown in a professional football game? So that's pretty rare that, that someone out of the seven point something billion people in the world get to score a touchdown in a professional football game. Now, it's even a bigger deal to score a touchdown in a Super Bowl, right? Now, it's a really big deal for running backs and receivers and quarterbacks to score touchdowns in the Super Bowl. But for a defensive lineman, I mean, that just almost never happens. And you've got Leon Lett, this defensive lineman, and he forgets where the goal line is. He begins to celebrate. He thinks the goal is to celebrate beforehand. And he doesn't score. D, uh, uh, Don Beebe chases him down, that great Wheaton football player, and, and knocks the ball out of his hand. And he's so close. And, and the thing is, he knows that he was going to take the football and he was going to put it in, you know, in a safe place and he was going to keep it to the touchdown that he scored in a Super Bowl. And his, he was going to give it to his kids and they were going to give it to their kids. They would pass it down. But it all went wrong. And he now is the number one worst premature celebration of all times on ESPN.com. That's, that's, that's where I got that. Number one premature celebration of all time. That's, that's how he's remembered. And you're like, oh, I feel a little bad for the guy. You know, I mean, he, he almost had it. He came so close. Another thing that coaches typically say, you hear a lot, is this idea that defense wins championships. Anyone ever heard that? Defense wins championships? Yeah, yeah, coaches, they all say that. It, it's not true. 
defense ties championships, right? Now, now in football, it's a little bit different, but in most sports, once you get the ball, you are on offense. You can only score on offense in most sports. So, you know, the way that life works is if you can't score any points, the best you can do is tie. So if you're only playing defense, the best that you can do is a tie. So my coach talked about playing offense and defense, playing on both sides of the ball. That was a big deal for him, playing both sides of the ball. Uh, Another thing that he used to talk about was this idea that that would happen, and it happens a lot in the Final Four. Uh, I don't know if you guys are fans of college uh, basketball, but there's this tournament in March, uh, March Madness, where, where uh, 64 teams, actually I think it's more than that now, but I don't know how many that, that it is, but it starts around 64 teams, and it gets to the 32 teams, and then the Sweet 16, then the Elite Eight, and then the Final Four, then you've got the championship game, and you win the national championship. And the cool thing about the Final Four is you have all these teams that are in these great conferences, that have these great uh, deep difficult schedules that have done really well. And then you have these teams that, that are practically nobodies. I mean, they've, they've come out of these conferences that are smaller. They've done really well, but they haven't been seen on the national scene. And so you get them playing against these great teams and all these crazy things happen in March. It's madness, right? It's complete madness. I coined that, March Madness. That's not true. And, uh, but so what'll happen, this happens a lot, is you'll get one of these underdog teams and they'll come out on fire. They're, 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 they're sprinting everywhere they go. They are, they're hustling. They're, they're taking chances. They're shooting three-pointers and they find themselves up by 10, 12, 15 points. And, and then they realize that they're up and they don't know what to do because they didn't, they didn't anticipate that they would actually be ahead of this great team. And they begin playing not to lose. Instead of playing to win like they were, they're, they're playing not to lose and they get scared and they get, get defensive and, 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 and it doesn't usually work out real well for them. My coach was big on telling us, not, don't play not to lose, play to win. Another thing uh, that plagued us deeply at Branson High School football, uh, basketball was uh, this idea of coming into a game and playing like you've already lost. Uh, Branson High School was, was characterized by their football team. We, we didn't have any great traditions in basketball except that we would lose. It was a great tradition that we upheld uh, when I was there. Um, and, and what happens in high school basketball is, is you play, and no matter how well you do in the season, you go to districts, and the slate is, is clean. And if you win districts, then you get to go into the playoffs, the state playoffs, which is what you want to do. I mean, that's, that's, that's your goal. But no matter how well we did during the season, we knew in districts we were going to lose. I mean, that was the tradition of Branson. So we walked into the game with this cloud over our head that we'd already lost. And it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, we're, we're going to lose. So we end up losing. And my coach was, was so big on these things. One thing he used to say a lot was, play all 32 minutes. High school basketball was four quarters of eight minutes, and math states that that's 32 minutes. So he would say play all 32 minutes. Now that's difficult. Basketball, the way that we played it, was basically sprinting up and down the court the entire game. And I don't know about you, but sprinting for 32 minutes is really, really difficult. That's hard. Okay, so let's, let's put it in terms that maybe we can understand. Let's say jumping on the treadmill, what if we put 32 minutes on the treadmill? That would be amazing. So let's do more what I do. Let's do 20 minutes on the treadmill, okay? So you put 20 minutes on the treadmill. 
It's really, it's really hard. In fact, I might say it's impossible for me to give it all I've got for 20 minutes on the treadmill. So what I would do is I'll set the timer, and when it gets down to two minutes left, that's when I kick it into high gear, which is probably slow for most of you. But still, that's when I go and give it my all because I can do it for two minutes. I can muster up enough gumption to just make it happen for two minutes. But for the whole 20 minutes, that's really hard. That's difficult. The, the entirety of it is, 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 is difficult. And what I found uh, in my life, it, in, in all of it really, is that I'm not much of a journey guy. I'm more of a destination type person. And here's what I mean. Uh, I don't know how many of you like to read books. I don't. I don't. There are a number of things about, about books that I don't like. One of them is that books ruin movies. It's, it's true. You never hear anyone go, coming out of the movie going, man, so much better than the book. The way I pictured that guy, it was nothing compared to who they had on the screen, right? So that, that's one reason. Another reason is I just don't enjoy it. I read to get information. I want the information in here as quickly as possible. I don't enjoy sitting there and flipping the pages. It's just not an enjoyment for me. I, part of it maybe is because I don't read like candy. I don't, I don't read fiction. I'm not, you know, I don't, you know, goo over Nicholas Sparks and Star Wars and whatever the fiction is that you might read. I, I read for information's sake and I want to get to the end. I want the information in as quickly as possible. It's all about the destination for me. And I think so often within uh, our lives and in the Christian life, we can be about moments. We can be about the big moments and not about the journey. Uh, Paul talks about the Christian life as a journey, as a race. He, he mentions a race a number of different times. He talks about running the entire race. It's a race. It's a journey. But, but there are some big moments in the Christian life, and, and we can admit they're big there was the moment that Jesus paid the penalty for all our sins and died on the cross. That was a big moment. We're going to rank that on a 1 to 10 scale. We'll give it a 10. Okay. The moment that you began to follow after Christ, that's a big moment. There's the moment when you close your eyes for the last time and you see Jesus face to face. That's a big moment. But, but what happens so often is I, as, as a guy that likes lists, I like to check things off my list. And the reason I like to check things off the list is because it's, there's too much to think about in this life. There's too much to do. And so if I can check it off the list and not have to worry about it, I'm good to go. So it's easy for me to think, saved, check, Christian, check, don't worry about that anymore. Right? I, I, now I go on and focus on other things. But, but, but scripture doesn't allow us to do this. You know, salvation is so important, but it's deeply tied to this idea called sanctification. And, and that's just a, a big Christian word that, that means being brought into completion in Christ, being made holy. As soon as you begin to follow after Christ, God gives you a new identity. And this new identity is child of God. Bride of Christ, temple of the Holy Spirit, saint. I mean, it's, it's a good identity. It, it's, a, it's an awesome identity. The only problem is I don't tend to live like a child of God all the time. You know what I'm saying? I mean, as soon as I become a Christian, I start following Jesus, I don't look like a child of God. I don't look like a saint very much. 
And so sanctification is the process of being brought into that, beginning to walk into that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and this is a big deal. Paul talks about the journey. It's a race. It, it's it's, it's an experience. It's not just a moment. But it's so easy to do that. We want to do this. And the first thing that I see in Scripture talking about this journey is this idea that it's active. It's not a passive journey. You don't just sit back in the lazy boy to win a race, right? When you're running a race, you don't just sit in a lazy boy um, and, and watch. That's not participating, right? That, that's passive. You've got to be active in it. And, and Jesus gets a bad rap a lot of times for, for being passive. Jesus was, wasn't passive. He didn't promote passivity, but he gets a bad rap for it sometimes. And, and there's a passage in Matthew, if you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You can trust that I will read it correctly. You can snatch up one of the beautiful blues. If you don't have one at home, you can take this home, and it can be yours for the low price of nothing. Uh, page 525, Jesus is speaking, and he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. At a glance, at a surface reading, it can kind of sound like he's saying, be passive, get walked on, right? get owned by people. That, that's, that's what it can kind of sound like. But if we jump into the, 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 the cultural ideas of these, it really gives it some depth. And you really begin to see that Jesus isn't promoting passivity, but he's promoting creative, active nonviolence here. And here's the idea. He says, hey, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, now, here's the way this would go. In that culture, no one did anything with their left hand. Uh, left hands were considered dirty and filthy, and so left-handed people like me wouldn't have functioned well in that society. So you didn't shake hands with your left hand. You shook hands with your right hand. You didn't touch people with your left hand. You touched them with your right hand. You didn't slap someone with your left hand. You only slapped them with your right hand. So if you're getting slapped on the right cheek by the right hand of someone else, physics would say that, you're getting backhanded. Now, the only way that you are allowed to backhand someone is if they were lower on the social ladder than you. In that system, there was a caste system, and you had different levels of people. You, you had slaves that were below masters. You had children that were below parents. You had women that were below men. You had Roman citizens that were above everyone. So if you were in a higher class, you had a higher status, then you could backhand someone. That was legal. Glad we don't live in that time. And you had to legally take it if you were in a lower class than them. And what Jesus is saying, instead of getting mad, instead of cursing them, instead of fighting back, and instead of being passive, be active. And creatively choose to submit and turn to them the other cheek. He says, if, if someone sues you for your tunic, which, you know, we all would hate to lose our tunic. If someone sues you for your tunic and they win, you legally have to give them your tunic. You have to. That's legal. He says, voluntarily, give them your cloak as well. 
Don't be passive. Don't be angry. Choose to serve them actively. It's kind of interesting what Jesus is saying here. It's, it's revolutionary, actually. He said if someone uh, asks you to carry their pack one mile, which this would refer to a Roman soldier, a Roman soldier was legally allowed to make anyone carry their pack, which is a really heavy backpack type thing, uh, one mile, which for you is a two-mile journey because you're going there and back because you didn't want to go where they were going anyway. You had to do this. And Jesus says, volunteer to carry it a second mile because no one does that. No one volunteers to carry the second mile. Don't be passive. Don't be angry. Be creatively active in the way that you live this Christian life. This was revolutionary. Paul talks about it in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, page 622 for both of you that are following along. Verse 24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. If you've ever looked at the training regiment of an Olympian athlete, it's crazy. I remember when Michael Phelps was winning a billion gold medals. They talked about his training regiment and how he would swim for eight plus hours of day. And he had to eat so many calories for all the calories that he was losing. So he had to actually eat in the pool, on the side of the pool, at certain times a day, these certain things he had to eat. I mean, he disciplined his life in every area. So we know what Paul is talking about here. And he says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. What they do is they compete and they get this crown that, that you know, will fade away. This, this crown that won't go with them into eternity. And they work really hard for this. He says, but us. He says, but we, we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't just saunter about aimlessly. He says, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Paul is saying, this is an active life. It's a race. It's a journey. And we have to be active participants in this. We have to be disciplined participants in this Christian life, walking through the path of sanctification. And Jesus does another thing. So often, I think, in my Christian walk, and I see it in other people's lives, it's easy to begin to feel bombarded by the enemy and to be on the defensive. It's like he's coming after you and people are coming after you and, and, and lust and, and pride and anger and gossip and they're just all coming after you and they're just, they're just owning you. And so you just get in this defensive position and you, you, you put on your shield of faith and you're just trying to block anything you can. You've got your three verses for every temptation because that's what Jesus had when he was tempted and it worked out well for him. And so you're just hunkered down in this defensive position just hoping to survive. But what Jesus says is, hey, I'm changing it all. I'm going to die, and I'm going to defeat death, and it's going to change things. He's, he's talking to Peter, he's talking to the disciples, and he, he's telling them about the church, and he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. I don't know about you, but I don't think gates are very good offensive weapons. Have you ever used a gate for an offensive weapon? You haven't, because you don't. A gate is a defensive thing. A gate is to keep people out. They would put those in their walls to keep people out 
It's a defensive thing. And Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail. So no longer is it a defensive battle. Now it's an offensive battle. We are actively, offensively living this life. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, verse 4 and 5. Actually, if you haven't memorized Um, He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh and blood, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The weapons are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He says in this war that we are fighting, in this journey that we are living, it's not against flesh and blood. Our our weapons are not like the weapons of war that you see the Romans using. It's different. It's a spiritual battle. We have these offensive weapons. And the the enemy is coming after us, okay? And there are things that, that, that begin to enslave us, like greed, Greed wants to own us. Greed wants to enslave us. But we've got an offensive weapon against greed, and it's called generosity. I've got this buddy in California, and and he and his wife, they they both had these awesome jobs, and they made bukus of dollars, loads of money. They They were rolling. They were doing real well. And then they felt convicted that they were working far too much, that these jobs were taking too much out of them, and they were neglecting their marriage. And so they both quit their jobs, uh, she didn't end up working for a while, and he took a, a job that, was, uh, that paid a whole lot less. Now, the difficulty there, though, is, is that money was a struggle for him. He, he struggled with the idea of feeling that God would provide. He, he struggled releasing control to God. He, and he also, on the other side of the coin, struggled with greed a little bit. And so what he would do whenever greed would creep up, whenever lack of trust in God's provision would creep up, what they would do it was they, they would find a couple that was less fortunate than them and they would take them out to eat and pay for their meal. He said, I'm not going to be on the defensive. I'm not going to allow greed to own me. I'm not going to allow distrust to own me. I'm going to go on the offensive and I'm going to fight it with generosity. Every time I feel it, I'm going to go be generous. And it was amazing the way that that worked in his life. When pride starts to creep up, when pride wants to own us and enslave us, we have got the offensive weapon of humility. We can humble ourselves. So often, uh, I've got a few buddies that are not afraid to speak truth into my life and and tell me when I'm out of line. And as soon as they start doing that, I've got to pray, God, help me to humble myself. Because my first reaction is not nice. It's it's unnice. It's unfriendly in the most pastoral way that, that there is. Um, when, when we begin, begin to be selfish, when selfishness wants to take over, when selfishness wants to own us, we have got the offensive weapon of unselfishness. When, whenever we begin to focus in on ourselves and look at ourselves and feel sorry for ourselves and think that it's all about us, we have the offensive weapon of going and being unselfish. My dad was, was great at this. When I was in high school, there were a lot of times when I was all into myself, when I was lonely or frustrated or depressed or whatever, I was just focusing on myself, feeling sorry for myself. And my dad would always say, why don't we go find the guy that's less popular than you and go do something awesome for him? Why don't we go find the person that's less fortunate than you and let's go serve them? And now, I didn't want to ever do it. 
But when we would do it, it began to change me. It began to change my heart. It began to change my mind, change the way that I looked at the world, the way I saw the world, the way that I saw myself. Because this is a gift that God has given us. When lust is creeping in, we have got the opportunity, we've got the offensive weapon of love. And this has, been, this has been amazing for me over the last few years. Anytime there is a woman, whether on a magazine or in person, that, that is dressed in a certain way that I may begin to lust after, what have I begun to do is this. As I've begun to pray for her, and not in the way that I used to when I was a lot younger, and I'd say, God, just help me not lust, help me not lust, help me not lust, and it was like this defensive position, but instead, God, develop within me a heart of love for this woman. Lord, I pray that you would just be with her. I pray that she wouldn't find her security and her hope in, in her looks. I pray that she wouldn't find her fulfillment in the way that guys and girls look at her and the way they treat her. Lord, I pray that you would protect her from all the men, from all the people that want to abuse her, from all the people that want to use her, from all the people that want to look at her as an object. God, I pray that you would find her hope and her fulfillment in you, that you would guide her. And what happens all of a sudden is instead of worrying about lusting after her and, and treating her as an object, I love her and I care about her and I want her good and, and I want to sacrifice my, my, my stupid urges to serve and submit. Like, it's crazy what happens when we begin to go on the offensive in the way that God has given us to, when we live this journey, this battle in that way. And as I was thinking through this, and I was praying through this, I, I, I came to, I think it was two nights ago, and I thought, yeah, this, this is it. This is, this is right. It's biblical, which that is, that is a, definitely a bonus. But I thought, there's something missing. There's something just not quite there yet. And I was praying through it. I was wrestling through it. I was reading, studying, and, and, and what, what, what hit me was this. Is that the point of it all is relationship. It's that we, as human beings, have the most amazing, mind-blowing opportunity to be in relationship with the God of the universe. Are you kidding me? We get to have relationship with the God of the universe, the creator and the sustainer of the world. I mean, that, that is just, that's mind-blowing in itself. That, that we could have a relationship with God. That God actually desires relationship with us. That he has been pursuing after us, pursuing after our hearts. That's crazy. And everything that we do, every way that we discipline ourselves, every way that we journey in this life and we fight and we go on the offensive, it's all in response to relationship. That, that it's, it's in view of God's mercy, in view of God's love, in view of God's sacrifice, in view of the way that he has pursued us all the way to the end. You see, we find joy and fulfillment in the relational journey. The journey is a relational journey. And I thought about it like this. Think about uh, a, a young couple that, you know, they just started dating and they're just, you know, all goo-goo eyes at each other and just all lovey-dovey and just everything is good and everything is perfect and everything they say is awesome, right? Can you picture them? It's kind of like, but, you know, we all know them. We've all been there. It was me at one time, right? Uh, and, and you've got this couple, and, and, and as I was thinking about when I was there, 
And, and I was thinking about the things that I hear. I've never really heard or thought about that, that in those moments that they would say, man, I just can't wait for that one single moment when I remove the veil and kiss you. Like that, that's what I'm looking forward to. It, to me, what I've always thought and heard is, is it's, I just can't wait till we never have to say goodbye. <laughs> I just don't want to say goodnight. <laughs> oh, we had to leave. I had to say goodbye. Because apparently when you're married, you never sleep and you never go on trips, right? But the thought is, it's not I can't wait for that one moment. It's I can't wait for the life together. I can't wait to spend every waking moment with you. I, I just, I just want to be with you. I want to walk with you. I want to listen to you. I want you to experience all the things that I experience. I want to live life with you. And we get the opportunity to live in relationship with the God of the universe. And relationship, the relational journey, is not a passive journey. I learned this the hard way. One of my things that I wanted to, uh, I don't think accomplish is the right word, but we'll use it for right now, is that I wanted to get a wife. Just one of those things, right? And, and, and I had a list. I'm, I'm a list guy. Things that I wanted to do, things I wanted to, to accomplish or get, and, and, and get wife was one of them. Now, I worked really hard at this. I'm going to be completely honest with you. When I dated my wife uh, before we got married, I was a rock star. <laughs> For real. I mean, I took her on some of the most creative dates that, that you could ever think of. I called her just because. I, I, I would compliment her all the time. I invented holidays so that I could give her flowers, so that I could give her cards, so that I could celebrate her. Just invented, made them up. Happy, uh, I love you, you're pretty day. That, that was one that, that I invented. And, and, and it went really well. And I thought, you know what? January 27th, 2007, I got it. We, we said, I do, and, and, and we're good to go. Now all I ever have to think about is three days, Valentine's Day, anniversary, and birthday. And I was wrong in a lot of ways, because birthday is a week <laughs> to my wife. I didn't know that. But year one of my marriage, my poor, poor wife, man, I just, I just put her on cruise control. I sat back in the lazy boy and thought, I don't have to do anything. Check wife. Don't have to think about that. Think about everything else. And good old Valentine's Day, year one. Oh, that wonderful day with the hearts. My wife, she uh, made me a card for every hour of the day. So while I was at, I was at work, every hour I, I would get to see how amazing she thought I was, how much that she loved me and how much she cared about me. And, and, and I, I did. Uh, oh, goodness. I'm just remembering something new. Uh, I didn't even read all the cards because I didn't have time because I was, I was working. Uh, and I didn't call her and tell her I love her. And, and we, had, we had talked about this thing. We had these financial goals as a couple that we wanted to accomplish. And so we were going to save money and we weren't going to buy big extravagant gifts. Um, I thought we had come to that conclusion. And here, there was this one thing that I wanted, and I'd wanted it for years. It's this gigantic bean bag that's not filled with beans, but with, with like bed foam, like memory foam. They, they call them love sacks, and it's just huge, and it's awesome, so comfortable, you can just dive into it. And I'd wanted one for a long time, and they, they weren't cheap. And I got home from work on Valentine's Day, and right there in the living room with a bow was a giant love sack. 
And you might imagine that I would have just melted and, and just said, oh, you're the greatest. I love you so much. Happy Valentine's Day, right? It's possible. It's, it, it's possible. We'll never know. It's possible that I got frustrated with her. I don't know. We don't remember. It's so, so long ago, right? <laughs> Epic fail, right? My entire first year of marriage, I failed because I neglected her. I didn't pursue after her. I didn't date her. I, I wasn't getting to know her heart. I was just coasting. And I hurt her really deeply, really deeply. Can you imagine? She, she's dating this guy, and he's really, really creative, really, really spontaneous. She thinks she's dating Nicholas Sparks, right? And then, and then all of a sudden, he becomes a brickhead, right? I date Nicholas Sparks, and then I marry brickhead, you think she felt really defrauded like I tricked her into marrying me? Yeah, because that's what I did. <laughs> and a year into it, I realized how deeply I hurt her. And I, and I began building relational equity. I began pouring into her, pursuing after her, getting to know her heart. And, and over the last couple of years, I have, I've been amazed. I knew that on January 27, 2007, that I married a, a winner, that she was great. But I had no clue. I mean, I really had no clue. And over the last couple of years, I've realized some amazing things about my wife. First thing is, is she's hilarious. She's so funny. She really is. She says some of the most clever things. And, and I've got like kind of the snobbish humor, and I don't really find a lot of people's humor funny. But I, she's so funny. She really is. She's such a joy to be around. She's, she does really crazy, fun, cute things. Uh, she, she wears footy pajamas. How fun is that? So fun. It's so cute, okay? Um, she, don't be mad at me. Um, that just happened, sweetie. Uh, and, and, and she does, uh, the way that she loves people, the way that she loves people is so extravagant. I mean, hospitality does not cover it. The way that she invites people into her home, invites people into her life, the way that she gives of herself and her time and her money, the way that she celebrates people. My wife works at Disney, and, and, and she celebrates people all the time. Uh, there, there's, we have a lot of friends that do a bunch of different things, and, and like, for instance, the people that were in the parade this summer they, they had like 17 last days that we had to celebrate. Like we celebrated the last Tuesday, you know, with the full moon. And we celebrated the last day with, I, I don't know, there were so many things. But she was celebrating people and she made signs and we got people to celebrate them. And I'm just blown away in the way that she loves people so extravagantly. I just learn from it constantly. The wisdom that my wife has, I had no clue. I, I really had no idea how wise she was, how much God had gifted her with wisdom. We've had a, a few conversations recently where she's um, coming to me and really kind of asking my advice. She's just had conversations with someone and giving them some advice and saying, hey, here's what I said. And, and I promise the last couple times my mouth has been open and I've been taking notes because it's unbelievable what she has said. The, the things that she was saying, I was just like, yeah, yeah, I, I need that. Can I steal that? Can I use that? This is real. I had no idea. And, what, and, and what, what I realize now is that during that first year, I mean, I, I regret hurting her, but I really regret because I missed out. 
I missed out on, on, on experiencing life with my wife. I really missed out. I missed out pursuing her heart and getting to know her heart and her humor and her wisdom and her love. Like I totally missed it. I had the greatest opportunity in the world for the first year of my marriage to just get to know her, to just spend time with her, to, to do life with her, and I missed it. And my wife is great. She really is. And I'm sure each of you have someone that you know, you know, that is that person. And they're great. But compared to the God of the universe, compared to love himself, compared to good to uh, times a billion, the God of the universe, we have the opportunity to live in relationship with him. Can you believe that? And the enemy doesn't want that. The enemy hates you. The enemy hates me. And the enemy knows what it's like to experience relationship with God. And he knows what, he's, what it's like to be without it. And he is miserable and he wants us all to be miserable. And so he wants to distract us. He wants to put th- shiny things uh, you know, in our view. He wants to distract us with entertainment. He wants to distract us with all kind of stuff so that we miss out. He wants us to be paralyzed with fear. He wants us to be terrified of this relational journey. He wants us to feel worthless and helpless and hopeless. He wants to remind us of everything we've ever done, all the sins we've ever committed, all the horrible things we've said, all the horrible things that we've done, the things that no one knows because they're so ugly, because they're so nasty and black. He wants to remind us and say, you're unworthy. There's no way that God wants to have a relationship with you. There's no way. If he knew, if people knew, because he so desperately wants us to miss out on the relational journey that we get the opportunity to experience with Jesus. I think about Paul in 2 Timothy 4.7. He's nearing the end of his life. This is probably the last letter he ever wrote. He's writing it to his child in the faith, Timothy, who he loves so deeply. And he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Earlier in the book, he says, I know whom I have believed. I know him. The one who I've believed in, the one who I've sought after, I know him. I've experienced life with him. I've lived with him. I've walked with him. I've spoken with him. I know him. And he says throughout all of his letters, that's what it's about. It's about knowing him. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about experiencing life with Jesus. It's about that relational journey. It's not about a moment at the beginning, a moment at the end. It's about the entire thing that we get to live life and experience with him. He says in Philippians, hey, there's a lot of things that I've done, a lot of things that I've gained, a lot of things that I've lost, a lot of things I've sacrificed, a lot of things I've suffered. And and if, if they're beneficial in me knowing Jesus more deeply than, oh, yeah, that's great. And if they're not, get rid of them. There's nothing. I consider it a loss in view of what it's like to know him, to experience him, to live life with him, the God of the universe, the fulfillment of all our desires. And I hear Paul saying to us, crying out to us at the end of his life, don't miss it. Don't miss out. It's an epic journey. It's a legendary love story. Don't miss out. Fight. 
wrestle, struggle, pursue. Don't miss out. I hear Paul saying to us, journey well all the way to the end. Journey well all the way to the end with Jesus because it's the most amazing thing you'll ever experience. You know, Paul, he lived life apart from Christ and he lived life deeply connected with Christ and he's like, I know, I know the difference and it's so worth it. Pursue after him, do not miss out. We have the opportunity of a lifetime because the God of the universe desires relationship with us, with each and every one of you. He desires to have a relationship with you. He's been pursuing after your heart. And we have the opportunity to pursue after his heart, to get to know him, to spend time with him, to live life alongside of the God of the universe. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That's what we get? Let's not, let's not miss out. Heavenly Father, we need you so deeply, so desperately. God, you are so good and you love us. Why do you love us, God? Thank you so much that you love us, that you pursue after our heart, that you desire a relationship with us, that you want to walk through the hard times and the difficult times and you want to walk through the good times with us. Thank you so much. I pray that you would continually draw us into relationship with you, that you would open our eyes to be able to see you and all of your beauty, that we might desire to run after you every moment that we can. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his most amazing, beautiful name that we pray these things. Amen.